1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul for uh, a timid pastor who had a group of believers who needed to hear about the truth and, and some uh, false teachers who needed to be uh, rebuked. And so Paul sends a letter to Timothy saying that he needs to be left behind there at the church in Ephesus so that he can strengthen that church. And so that's what uh, we saw in our introduction, our overview of the book last week. The quality of an automobile depends in large part on the precision of the workers on the assembly line. If you have a group of workers who are not concerned with the final product, then the final product is going to be a mess. The fact is that it's not just about the people who design the car or about the people who implement the design with the, the, the precise um, setup of the, the factory floor, but it's about the individual workers as well. They need to be concerned about the quality of the product because when they get sloppy about the, the goal that they're working to, a quality automobile at the end of the line, then it won't be long. If they're not concerned about that, then it's going to show up in, in the lack of quality and the final product. In a similar way, the church can start to slip in its doctrinal quality, that is, their concern for doctrinal quality, if there are not people who are vigilant about standing for sound doctrine. Right? If we're serious about the gospel, then we're going to be motivated to confront false doctrine and to demand sound teaching. We're not just going to leave that to the pastor, leave that to the leaders of the church. They're going to handle all that. No, we, we each have to be vigilant, just like the workers on the assembly line do for the final product. Paul was with the Ephesian church in its infant stages, but then during his fourth missionary journey, he stopped by to see how they were doing. And what he discovered was that there were leaders who were rising up to lead the congregation to believe strange doctrines that led to fruitlessness and spiritual destruction, spiritual stagnation. And so Paul leaves his trusted partner, Timothy, there in order to confront these false teachers, and in order to teach sound doctrine. The focus of our study tonight is verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1, so let me draw your attention there in your Bibles. Follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Here, Pat, uh, uh, Paul wants Timothy to know that he must work to expose false doctrine. The pastor has a responsibility. He must work to expose false doctrine. The pastor must work to, to expose false doctrine. So here, Paul is leaving Timothy to do that work. You need to expose this sound doctrine because these people have actually drifted and now they're teaching strange things that is actually against the core of what we believe and what, what the Scriptures teach. And so, Timothy, you need to draw that out. You need to point that out 
to these people. You need to rebuke them, and um, and you need to teach what is sound doctrine. So um, there's uh, first we're going to see the the nature of false doctrine, and then we'll see the need to challenge false doctrine. So first, the nature of false doctrine. The nature of false doctrine. The nature of false doctrine is that it challenges sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 3. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Literally, this phrase is different doctrines. In other words, heresy, heterodoxy, that which is against the faith, faith, blasphemy. We'll take a look in more detail how these doctrines are identified and what they result in. But for now, we need to see that they're strange. That they're not normal. They're not uh, part of the norm of the true doctrines of the faith. They're not part of orthodoxy. right? The, the orthodox uh, truths that we find in the Scripture that are clear, that, that, that we hold to, that we must hold to in order to be saved, these are against those things. They are strange. They are different. So how can we tell what is true and what is false? I mean, how do we know what the difference is? Because frankly, sometimes they're disguised. So these doctrines are disguised to look like they're the true doctrine. So how do we know? And the answer is, in the simplest terms, that we need to look at the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? But, but here's the difficulty it makes it even more difficult. You know, it would be one thing if someone came in and taught a strange doctrine that had no bearing or no connection to the Scriptures. But apparently these false teachers were coming in and they were actually using the Scriptures to, to lead people away. So then how can we tell? How can we tell what is true and false if they're using Scripture references, for example? If they're using uh, their, their little proof texts to show what they... What, what they think is true. How do we know which one is true and which one is false? Well, here's one of the ways that we can tell in verse 5. Sound doctrine can be, ad- by, can be identified by its fruitfulness. So, we want to know which one is true and which one is false. The first way is that if it's sound doctrine, it's going to result in fruit. If we want to think about it like the fruit of the Spirit, it produces that which is supernatural. No one is loving in a godly way on their own. No one is loving in a no one has joy that comes from the spirit unless it unless the spirit produces that in him, right? No one is gentle or kind or patient, long suffering, right? All all those fruit of the spirit cannot happen in anyone apart from the spirit. So if this doctrine actually produces that in someone, we know it's a true doctrine. So let me show you that from the text. Verse 5, but the goal of our instruction, so okay, these men have moved us into strange doctrines, but, but the goal of our instruction, we could say this is the sound doctrine, is love. This is what it produces. If you have sound doctrine, it's going to result in genuine love. What, what kind of love is this? What, is, what, is it, um, what drives it? And, and that's what we see in the second part of the verse, that it, it's... Love that comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a sincere faith. So in contrast to the strange doctrine, the the doctrine that Paul teaches results in genuine love for God and for other believers. In other words, the doctrine of God leads to and promotes love. 
Sound doctrine produces the pinnacle of all the fruit of the Spirit, love. This fits with what we know about the eternal law of God, or if you're in Sunday school, the eternal law of God, because I can't spell on the board, but no one pointed that out till afterwards, and I missed an N in that word. That He is a God who, who demands that His people love Him. This is our God. That we love Him and that we love one another. This is part of God's nature. This is part of what God expects of us. We talked about expectations this morning. That we love God and that we love one another. This expression of God's um, expectation for us is seen in the law of Moses and then it's repeated in the New Testament law of Christ. Love God, love your neighbor. All of the law could be summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law can be summed up in those. Jesus said it this way in John 13:35. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's how we can know if someone is a follower of Christ. Okay? Are, do they have produced within that has the, 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 the fruit of love and these other, particularly love, but, but these other fruit of the Spirit, are they produced in that person? Because Jesus says, all men will know that you are my disciples. All men will know that you follow me if you love one another. So here Paul says, listen, the goal of our instruction is love. It's not the opposite of that. We're going to get into the opposite, which is, it actually creates strife and conflict. And we know it's not sound doctrine when it creates that, but, but we know it is sound doctrine when it creates love. Now, sound doctrine can also be identified by its source. And verse, the second part of verse 5 says, tells us where this love comes from. It comes from a pure heart, a sincere conscience, and uh, a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the idea here is that this love is produced by these things. So that's why I said love is kind of the pinnacle of the fruit of the Spirit. That these other, these other issues that are, are mentioned here, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, actually lead to love. Love cannot be done artificially. It cannot be uh, manufactured of our own strength. It has to be something that God produces through these three things. First, uh, this genuine cleansing that's taken place, a pure heart. That is a cleansed heart. It's not a self-serving heart that seeks to advance my own position, but rather this love comes from, from a person who has a genuinely cleansed heart. They have been transformed. They have been regenerated. Secondly, this sound doctrine that produces love is sourced in a clean heart. That is a good conscience. They understand the, the difference between what is right and what is wrong. It's a heart that knows that their guilt has been removed or covered by the blood of Jesus at the cross, that, that Christ is enough. It's a heart that knows and wants to do what is right. So this sound doctrine that produces love comes from a cleansed heart, pure heart, as the text says. It comes from a, um, a clean heart, a good conscience. And then I would say thirdly, this sound doctrine that produces love is sourced in a genuine heart. That's what this sincere faith is. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's not used for the, the sake of advancing my own position or to make sure that I get life as cushy as possible for myself. 
It's actually to, to reach out and, and do God's will, that's loving God, and then it's actually to serve the other person, to, to, to help them along in their Christian life, even if it's a, a disadvantage to me, if it's, if it's inconvenient. So sound doctrine can be identified by its result, its fruitfulness, that it, that it produces love, and it can be identified by its source. So how can we know if something is true or false? There's the first way, is by looking at the sound doctrine, what it produces. The second is by looking at the converse. False doctrine uh, can be identified by the fact that it, it challenges sound doctrine or it majors on the minors. It clings to extraneous details and makes that the center of, of its religion. Timothy's job was make sure that you, uh, notice at the end of verse 3, you instruct certain men not to teach them, so make sure they don't teach them, but also, notice verse 4, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. What does it mean to pay attention to? Well, that verbal phrase comes from the same Greek word that's translated in chapter 3, verse 8. Okay, so here's what we're looking for. This phrase here in verse 4 don't pay attention to. Make sure that they don't pay attention to. See if you can find it in chapter 3, verse 8. The same Greek word is translated a different way in chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid game. Which, which verb in there do you think is also translated as pay attention to here in chapter 3, verse 8? Any ideas? Crickets. What is it? Fond? Not fond. We're narrowing it down, though. That was helpful. What else? No, not double-tongued. Getting closer. Addicted. Okay? So deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or that they pay attention to much wine. Okay? We kind of get the sense there, but... But now go back to chapter 1, verse 4. So make sure that these men are not teaching these strange doctrines and they're not addicted to myths and endless genealogies. Do you know anybody like this? They, they find the minor issues in the Scriptures and they make a huge explosion of, of uh, concentration on these things as if it's the most important thing in the entire Bible. They make sure that you agree with them on that position. And try to say to them, you know, is that really central to what we believe? I mean, it's not that we should be unconcerned about extraneous details. It's not that we should be unconcerned about the smallest details of the Scripture. I mean, God wrote it all for a reason. But when we take the minor things in the Scripture and we make that into our biggest issue, then we've done what these false teachers have done. We've actually become addicted things that God never meant to take center stage. So, so here, they, these, these false teachers are obsessing over things that have no substance. And what are those things? Well, chapter 4, verses 1-3 through three is going to explain a little bit more about that, which we're not going to get into tonight. But apparently they were demanding some ascetic practices, you know, like monk kind of practices. No food, no marriage, um, things like that. No unclean food, I should say. No marriage. And, and so they're saying, this is the real essence of spirituality. See what they've done? 
they've taken something that's on, the, they've actually understood it wrongly, by the way, but, but they've taken the, something that's on the outskirts of what God had intended, why He put those laws there, and they've made that their banner. That they're going to die, you know, this is, this is the, the hill on which they're going to die, right? Have you, you ever argued with people like this? I just received a packet last week, actually it was while I was gone, just digging into all the details of the Scripture and, and like trying to connect all these dots that didn't make any sense. And, um, and tried to use like some of the numerical codes and, and things like that. And, and the reality is that those who turn away from sound doctrine will turn to these kinds of things. They will turn towards myths. They will turn towards endless genealogies. They will be addicted to those things so that that's all they think about and talk about. Let me show you that that's going to be the case based on 2 Timothy. Turn there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. And notice, and they'll turn aside to myths. Listen, this is the nature of churches who are not vigilant about sound doctrine. That over time, they will turn away from the truth. And they will gather for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, give them what they want to hear, make them feel good. Highlight all these extraneous details that don't get to the heart of our problem, our ongoing sin, and the conflict that's going on among us. It doesn't get to any of those things because we're focusing on these details. And as a result, they've actually turned away from the faith. That's what happens when people turn away from sound doctrine. They turn to these myths and endless genealogies. What exactly that entails with these false teachers, we don't know, but, but apparently they were taking various parts of the Old Testament and building false doctrines from them. They were speaking on behalf of God where God hadn't spoken. They were attaching significance to, you know, just imagine t- them taking a, a, a chronology and trying to draw some kind of spiritual theological connection to something that doesn't, that, that doesn't match. In other words, they're, they're adding some significance to something that God never intended. False doctrine can be identified by the fact that it majors on the minors. It actually confronts or challenges sound doctrine. And then, secondly, we see that false doctrine can be identified by its fruitlessness. False doctrine can be identified by its fruitlessness. So what does it produce? Here's a good way to be able to determine what's true and what's false. If it's true, it ought to produce the fruit of the Spirit, particularly the the pinnacle of that love, which comes from a a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But but if it's not sound doctrine, it's it's going to produce nothing. It's going to produce bad fruit or fruitlessness. Look at the end of verse 4. They pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. These teachers subtly are clinging to the doctrine of demons. That's what chapter 4 verse 1 calls it. Instead of focusing on the text and the reading of the Scriptures, the understanding of the Scriptures... Instead of focusing on the clear meaning of the text, they take a word or a phrase 
from a passage and they use that as a springboard from which they make a discussion, a whole sermon about something, telling lots of stories. Paul says it just leads to mere speculation. Turn to chapter 6, verse 3, because you see a little bit more about how we can, we can identify this. If anyone, chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, again, that's the same idea, strange doctrine, different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he has conceded and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. You see, it's the same sort of speculation that's going on. It's focusing on things that are of little importance or they're attaching significance to things that ought not to have that great a significance. They, they focus on all these controversial questions. And what does it give rise to? Envy, the end of verse 4, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Here's how we can identify false doctrine. What does it produce? Not only does it lead to mere speculation, but it leads to fruitless discussion. Look at the end of verse 6. I'll just read the whole verse. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Their, their doctrine leads to spiritual fruitlessness. Sound doctrine leads to love. That's fruitful. These doctrines lead to endless rabblings and, and useless and applicationless teaching. You know, kind of like we build our, our minds up for the sake of knowledge, but then do nothing with it. We never apply it in any way. It's just, you know, we know more. False doctrine can be identified by the fact that it majors on the minors, can be identified by its fruit, fruitlessness. And then we see in verse 4, the very end of the verse, false doctrine can be identified by its opposition to God's Word. Verse 4, Instruct certain men not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. So false doctrine can be, identi can be identified by the fact that it opposes God's work. Instead of advancing God's work, notice at the end of verse 4, it actually, gives, it actually does not further the administration of God. True doctrine results in love and it advances God's work. False doctrine leads to nothingness. And it actually pits itself against the work of God. The work of God which is by faith. Sound doctrine is grounded in the fact that God is true and that His Word is clear. Anything that, that, that goes against that, anything that thwarts the work of God from going forward is actually false teaching. The nature of false doctrine is that it challenges sound doctrine and, and then, it, then uh, false doctrine is also championed by the spiritual people. And I put spiritual in quotation marks there. It's championed by the spiritual people people who were formerly sound in doctrine. Let me show you where I get that from in verse 6. For some men straying from these things. What, what things? Well, verse 5. The goal of our instruction, our sound doctrine, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But do you know there's some people who used to be in that camp? 
They used to teach sound doctrine in some way, shape, or form, but they've what? They've strayed, verse 6 says, they've strayed from these things. People who once were committed to sound doctrine in some form. Now, we, we might like to think of false teachers as these saboteurs from outside of our church. People who come in on, you know, with, with guns ablazing and all their armor on and ready to destroy us. Ready to, ready to attack. But these aren't those kind of men. These are men and women who rise up from it within the church who used to believe in some sense in sound teaching and yet over time they have strayed from these things. They've turned away from these things. They once sought to persevere in sound teaching that resulted in love, but not anymore. And this is creating a huge issue for the church at Ephesus. And what's amazing is the number of people. Notice verse 6. For some men straying from these things. So it doesn't say that the majority of your church is doing this and so you really need to shake things up here. All it takes is just a few to cause a great amount of havoc within a church. Also, some men. This is part of the challenge of false teachers. They may be few, but they often have great influence. These apparently were in positions of power. It, it seems to me that that these teachers that Paul is is wanting Timothy to confront were actually leaders in the church and probably very well elders in the church, that is, pastors. The reason I say that is because um, of a couple of reasons. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he gives qualifications for what a godly leader ought to be. And then in chapter 5, he says, here's how you confront a sinning elder. Uh, an elder who has sinned or who has turned away from the faith who is teaching false doctrine. So it seems to me that Paul is addressing, Paul is wanting Timothy to address these men who actually are in positions of significant influence. Not just, you know, people who just happen to be members or, you know, they're kind of just regular attenders but not members. It seems to me that they're actually leaders in the church. Notice they want the position of power in verse 7. They desire power, wanting to be teachers of the law. Here's their motive. All right, what's our motive? If we want to teach sound doctrine, our motive, verse 5, is that we do it from a proper heart, right? A, a cleansed heart, a, a genuine heart. But their motive is they want the position of power. They want to be teachers of the law. It sounds like they want the title and the recognition, but they, but they are unable and inadequate for the position. They're un, unwilling to put in the work. Or more likely, their work in the study of the Scriptures is misguided because they're majoring on the minors. They're developing doctrines that are uh, based on ancillary, non-essential issues. And frankly, that's one of the challenges that, that we as individuals and I as, as your pastor have to face. What are the major issues? What ought, to be, what, we, what ought we to be focusing on as a church? What, what are the key doctrines that we cannot deny? What, what are the doctrines that hold us together as a body that we've affirmed? Those are the types of questions that we need to be able to answer. These men were focusing on ancillary, non-essential issues. They wanted the position and recognition, and they claimed to, to link their teaching of the law uh, to the law of Moses, but they really had no clue what is going on. Look at verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying, 
or matters about which they make confident assertions. So, this leads to the third expression of these spiritual, in quotation marks, people. Their teaching is not based on truth. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, they, this, is, this is why it's difficult, again, because they're claiming texts from the Old, Old Testament Scriptures. This is what the Law of Moses says, so this is what we ought to do. We cannot eat this kind of food. We cannot marry. And let me show you some verses. Paul says, but they don't even know what they're talking about. And yet, not only don't, don't they know what they're talking about, but when they speak about it, they speak about it with such confident assertions. So in contrast to the apostles and Timothy who knew the purpose of the law, we'll see that next week, they understand what the purpose of the law was. These men try to connect their teaching to the law, but they don't have any clue what the law really taught. They don't understand what the whole purpose of the law really was. They don't understand how it fits within the big scheme of what God was doing. And yet they're making these statements about it. And what's perhaps even more sad is that they are confident in their ignorance. That's what the last part of verse 7 says. They, they make these confident assertions. Nothing wrong with making a confident assertion. Nothing wrong with having a conviction about something. It's only wrong if it's a conviction about something that's not true. In contrast, Timothy needs to be someone who speaks truth and clarity into a situation. He needs to understand what he is saying and he needs to make confident assertions that are actually grounded in the Bible and what the Scriptures say. What the Scriptures intend. See, it's more than just what they say because, I mean, think about it. These men who wanted to be teachers of the law were actually speaking the Scriptures in some way. But, but were they really portraying the author's intention there. That's the real question. So there is a, a, a very real reality uh, of false doctrine that, that is um, possible and I would just say probable in our church and in churches like ours. So that's why Timothy was left there because there is a great need to challenge false doctrine, the need to challenge false doctrine. Verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. False doctrine is not neutral. It cannot be left alone. We might think, well, you know, yeah, they, they really are spending a lot of time on that ancillary issue, but we'll just let it go and see if it passes. False doctrine is not neutral. It cannot be left alone. It, it must be opposed. It must be stood up to. It cannot go unchallenged. And so this is why Paul left Timothy there. He wants him to sort out some of these big issues. It sounds like Paul had already done some of that. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. But, but apparently there were still some left. And Timothy's job wasn't necessarily to get rid of these men, particularly if they were if they had any life in them spiritually. But he certainly needed to stand up to them. Notice Paul doesn't say get rid of them. He says, tell them to stop doing this. Tell them to stop focusing on the minor things. Instruct them not to teach. Instruct them not to embrace. It, it seems like Paul has some hope for these men that they're actually going to turn around. 
very likely, as I mentioned before, Timothy's not dealing with an average church member, but with, with a teacher. Very likely an elder, a pastor of the church. And so he's got his work cut out for him. Let's think about some applications for ourselves, two of them tonight. Number one, we must not be passive about false teaching. We could say it another way, we must be proactive against false teaching. We cannot be passive about false teaching. This is a huge responsibility on me as the pastor to exhort in sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, and refute those who contradict it. That's one of the qualifications that is expected of a pastor, that he actually knows what is sound doctrine, and he knows how to contradict those who oppose it. These apparently leaders in the church were not exhorting in sound doctrine. They were doing the opposite. They were turning away from sound doctrine and exhorting in false doctrine. And by virtue of the authority that you have from God as a congregation to call me as a pastor, you have called me to be the primary defender of the faith in our congregation. So I have this responsibility to teach sound doctrine and to refute false teachers. And so just a brief sub-application is, is just regularly pray for me in this regard. There are lots of things that could easily slip through the cracks that I leave unnoticed or I'm focusing on some other issue and don't see some, some huge iceberg that's up ahead. So, so regularly pray for me that I understand the Scriptures, that I'm guarding my own heart. Right? Watch yourself first and then your doctrine. And by doing so, you'll be able to save both those who hear you, both yourself and those who hear you, Paul says. So pray for me regularly. I would, I would greatly appreciate that. But, but I want to encourage you that, notice in this application, I put the word we. And that's not the narrative we like me. That's we, as a congregation, need to be vigilant about sound doctrine. We need to be uh, proactive against false teaching. I often encourage you in this way that, that the job to protect the church from error is not mine alone. Defending our church against false doctrine is not like getting on a plane. You know, when we get on a plane, we give no input with regard to how the plane ought to be flown. We don't send up our notes to the pilot and say, this is how we think it ought to be done. Because we don't know how to take off or land we pay money to a professional pilot who has the training necessary, we hope, that he's going to be able to know what to do in times of trouble or in times of ease. That he'll know how to turn, uh, turn the airplane, how to land the airplane, how to turn back and land at an alternative airport if necessary because of some danger that arises. That's not how we defend the church like we get on an airplane. You don't just hire me to ward off all the false teaching. And that's why I continually remind you to be vigilant about sound teaching, about learning to be discerning yourself. Defending our church against false doctrine and teachers is, is less like getting on a plane and more like playing on a sports team. You know, a sports team, there is a coach who has the job to give direction, but each of us our players on the team. We each have responsibility to, to make sure that we're playing hard and playing according to the rules and trying to get the end goal of the game. Because the fact is that as your pastor, I am, I am human. 
And there is a possibility that I could stray from sound teaching. That's why Paul warned, as I often quote to you in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if anyone preaches another gospel other than the one that you have heard from the apostles, even if it's Paul or an angel from heaven, let that one be accursed. Whose job is it to check to see if the leaders are teaching sound doctrine? Whose job is it to make sure that the leader is, is protecting our church from false doctrine? In Acts 17.11, the Bereans are commended for searching the Scriptures daily to check Paul to see if what he was saying was true. But let me show you why I know that this job of defending the Gospel is more than just my job. Look at chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So this appositional phrase here at the end, the pillar and support of the truth, describes the previous phrase, which is the church of the living God. So we could put an equal signs there, equal sign there, right? It is the church of the living God equals the pillar and support of the church. Notice what it does not say. The pastor is the pillar and support of the truth. It's not what he says. It's the church. It's the household of God. In other words, the church as a whole has a responsibility to guard the gospel. Now, part of the way that you do that is by choosing a capable teacher. But you also do that by holding me accountable in my teaching. And you work hard to defend the gospel by supporting me when I, when I stand up to false teachers. Not, you know what, we're just, let's just all get along. We don't want to make any waves. You actually help defend the gospel when you support me in standing up to false teachers. And again, how are you going to know that unless you understand what the difference between truth and falsehood is? We must not be passive about false teaching. And then the second application is that we must learn the difference between true and false doctrine. So how do we do this? This is, um, this is difficult, especially with gifted orators and gifted speakers. They can be so subtle with how they talk. It's sometimes, it's, you know, when you try to confront a leader who is gifted in speaking, it's, it's like talking to a lawyer. You know, they always have something that they can say. So how do we do this? How, how do we know the difference between what is true and, and what is false? One of the ways that we can tell the difference is by, again, as we saw in the text, by looking at the fruit of their teaching. If the teaching produces strife and wickedness and corruption, and guess what? It's not from God. But if it produces love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, then it is from God. Let's take an example that is probably a little bit difficult to think through, and that is the example of Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a universalist. He believes, he believes in sin. And he also believes that people are in opposition to God, but he believes that eventually everyone will end up in heaven because God will win them over with His love. 
Now, how can we know if what Rob Bell is saying is true? I just got done saying you have to look at the fruit of it. Does it create division and strife and opposition to God? Does it turn us away from the work of God or does it produce love? And here's the difficult part, right? The fruit of Rob Bell's teaching seems to be love, isn't it? I mean, it seems to be more loving to tell a person that everything's going to be okay. It seems to be more loving to tell non-Christians to not confront them with their sin and to tell them that that God's going to change you at some point. He's going to bring you into His presence no matter, and we might not say it this way, or Rob Bell wouldn't say it this way, but no matter how you live. That seems like the more loving thing to do, but, but here's what we need to ask. Does, this, does His teaching really produce love? Let's think about it in the two levels in which we are to love, right? Love God and love others. Is the, is, do we express our love from, for God by misrepresenting what he has said about a real hell and about the real consequences of sin. Is that loving to God? See, it might sound loving because, hey, we don't have to confront our non-Christian neighbors, but it's, not, it's far from loving, isn't it? It's actually misrepresenting the God that we're claiming to represent. The Scriptures are clear that hell does exist and that people actually live there now and there will be more added and they will live there for all of eternity. Revelation 20 and 21 and a number of teachings from our our Lord. Let's think about Rob Bell's teaching on the other level. Not just he's misrepresenting God, so he's not producing love. His teaching does not produce love. But how about on the level of other people? Is it loving for a person like Rob Bell to tell non-Christians that no matter how they live, God will eventually win them over because love wins? See, they're going to go on living their lives. If they buy into his teaching, right? They're going to go on living their lives however they please with a false sense of eternal security that they should never have. Thinking, I can go through life because Rob Bell told me that I'm going to be okay with my God. God's loving enough. They're going to eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow they will die thinking that they're going to be in God's blessing and presence. Do you see? His teaching may sound loving, but it does not produce genuine biblical love for God or for others. And the way that we know that, again, is we test it against what the Scriptures say. Check it with how the the Scriptures define love. See, love seeks the best interests of the other person. But that doesn't mean that the other person will immediately accept it or even recognize that, right? When you confront them with their sin and say, listen, your sin is leading you to an eternal hell. They may not recognize that immediately. They may not accept that immediately. But that is the most loving thing that you can do is tell them the truth. Because to ignore that fact and to let them go on throughout life thinking that they're okay and that God's going to win them over with His love is to... to Allow them to go on in their blindness and cause eternal damage to their souls. See, in some cases, your love for your unsaved family member will result in their cutting off a relationship with you because they don't see it the way you do. And according to the Bible, that is love. 
Now, it's not I'm purposely cutting off relationships with my family. That's not what I'm saying. But, but if the truth spoken in a loving way actually creates a division between you and them, then, then, you, then you have actually acted in love because you've spoken the truth to them. Jesus was the best example of this. He came to this world to love, and particularly he came to his own, right? To the Jews. And they rejected him. And, and do we ever call Jesus anything but love? Right? He was loving, even though he created some division between himself and they, but, but not division based on uh, the source of the truth or, 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 or the, the, the final result of the truth. It was because they, their hearts were hardened. The point is that we must know the Word. This is how we can know between truth and error. It's the only way we can. We have to continually study and, and meditate on the Word of God. See how God defines love. See what God says that love looks like. And this is how we will know what the truth is. We have a job to stand up against false teaching and to be able to discern what is true and what is false. And we do that as a congregation. I have a great responsibility in that regard, but you help in that way by holding me accountable and also looking out for other situations that are, are turning where, where people are turning away from the faith. And we, we work on this together, and God is gracious. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the deep love that you had for us when we first heard the message of salvation. It was um, most likely, and most of us, resisted by us. We wanted to, to live lives our, our lives our own way. And, um, and yet you, uh, you were faithful to us. You continued to pursue us. You used people in our lives to show us the, the blessing of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. You allowed them to explain the truth of the gospel even when um, we didn't want to be confronted with it. And uh, so we're thankful for that. Lord, thank you for, for being faithful to us. And we pray that you'd help us to be faithful to you by working to understand what are the major parts of the Scripture. We don't want to just cut out sections that are unimportant, but, but we also don't want to major on the minors. So give us uh, wisdom in doing that. And, and I pray that you'd help me in my responsibility to lead this church in, in standing up for sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. And uh, Lord, we pray that as a whole we would be united around the truth of your word, continually seeking to see what I am saying, if it is true, and, and when I stray from the truth that I'm challenged on it or removed. pray that you give us the, the, the wisdom and the courage to be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.